Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Essex Church, home of this gathered community known as Kensington Unitarians. Well done, and thank you for getting here after this week of adverse, adverse weather conditions. I, I'm glad you made it here today. If anyone's here for the first time this morning, you are most welcome. I hope this service holds something of what you came here looking for. Perhaps you're a regular visitor, in which case, welcome back. It's good to know that old friends look us up every time they're in town. Or maybe you're a regular here. Perhaps you've given your heart to this place and these people, and this church feels like your spiritual home. You are welcome, and you're the ones that do the welcoming too. Whoever you are, however you are, wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we're glad to have you here with us today. Make yourself at home, stay for tea and biscuits if you can. For anyone who doesn't already know me, my name is Jane Blackall. I work here, as I've done for over a decade now, as the outreach officer. Uh, Minister Sarah is having a well-earned day off, and she'll be back next week. Our opening words are by Joan Javier Duval. Here, here is where you can lay it down. Lay down all that you've carried. The weight of the world that has rounded your back, leaving you aching and exhausted. Here, here is where healing begins, where burdens are set down for a time and seen alongside other people's struggles, their magnitude does perhaps not seem as great. Here, here is where the door is thrown open and the light can lift away the shadows. What was hidden can now be seen. Here, here is where you can rest where nothing is expected but that you bring all of who you are into the presence of the holy and of this loving community. Let's light our chalice flame as we do each week and as fellow Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists do the world over. This simple ritual connects us to so many kindred spirits, those people of liberal faith who came before us and those who will follow after we're gone. Every day brings struggle. Every day brings joy. Every day brings us the opportunity to ease the struggles of another, to be the joy in another person's life. May this small flame remind us to carry out our light to each other and to the world. Let's just focus on those candles now and all the joys and concerns they represent. And let's take those joys and concerns into a time of prayer and reflection now. Take a moment to get yourself settled and in the right frame of body and mind for us to pray together. Spirit of life, God of all love, as we move into this time of prayer, this time of quiet reflection and companionable stillness, let's tune in to the deeper realities of all that is. In this world we know of so much suffering and chaos. 
We hear stories of cruelty, injustice and wrongdoing every day. People near and far are deprived of their most basic human needs. The news is often overwhelming and we can feel quite powerless. It's all too much, this hurt. Let us take a moment just to breathe and to hold in your heart one thing, just one situation that you're concerned about in the world right now. One that you feel particularly drawn to or connected with, where a person or a group are suffering, sick, in pain or distress, being harmed or discriminated against, or oppressed in some way right now. You might focus on something you've heard about on the news, or perhaps something that's going on much closer to home. Maybe something that's happening to you personally, because you need care too. <coughs> Let's spend a moment focusing our hearts on that situation and directing prayers of loving kindness to all those who are affected by it. We acknowledge the many ways in which our world is hurting. And yet, in this world we know of so much goodness, beauty and compassion. We witness acts of kindness and generosity every day. Opportunities to help those in need, to bring comfort and joy, to stand up for what is right. These opportunities surround us wherever we turn. Despite everything, there are still so many ways in which each of us can flourish and grow. It is all too much, this promise. Let us take a moment just to breathe. And to hold in your heart just one thing. One situation that you are grateful for in the world right now. Maybe something that's happened to you personally, or to someone you know or in a news story you've heard. Perhaps someone has stood up against injustice and a wrong has been righted. Maybe something out in nature or the work of an artist has brought you joy. You might recall a moment of tenderness or deep connection with a friend or a loved one. Or it could be that a seemingly impossible situation has been transformed by pure grace. Let's spend a moment focusing our hearts on that situation, whatever it is, and offering prayers of thanksgiving for all that is good in our lives. Spirit of life, God of all love, help us to find our way in the world. In the days and weeks to come, give us the insight and courage we need to live well and be our best selves. 
and let us use our gifts for the greater good of all as channels of your love, bringing healing and comfort to those we meet along the way. Amen. The following is an excerpt from the personal story of Javi Carell, a philosopher who was a very fit and active woman in her 30s when she found herself becoming increasingly unwell, unable to keep up with her friends when out walking, dizzy, exhausted and breathless. After a series of investigations, she was diagnosed with a rare and progressive lung condition called LAM, lymphangioliomyomatosis, a disease for which there is no cure. This reading's quite a long one, um, but we wanted to give you a taste of her story. She writes, In the months that followed my diagnosis, I went through a bewildering array of emotions. At first I was shocked, then depressed, sometimes relieved that I still had decent lung function, then disillusioned as my condition deteriorated. First came the inhalers, three different ones, then came the oxygen, first portable cylinders, then the nighttime supply. Then came a difficult period in winter, during which I lost more and more abilities. Many things became impossible for me, walking uphill, walking and talking at the same time, doing anything and talking at the same time, going upstairs without stopping, carrying anything heavy. During that time, it seemed that every week my world was shrinking more and more. Every week I discovered, in a grotesque reversal of child development, yet another thing I could no longer do. I cancelled my gym subscription. I took the bus. I no longer tried to scale a hill. During a, a trip to Scotland, my husband and others went up Cairngorm Mountain. They got up early, packed their supplies, and strapped on their hiking boots. I was left behind to go up the funicular railway with the young children and their mums. How I wanted to be hiking that day, how I wanted to be able to spontaneously burst into a run rough and tumble with my nephews, scale a hill without pausing for breath every 10 minutes. But I was locked in my body, trapped by the feeble lungs, the impaired gas exchange, the pain in my chest, the fear of, a suffer of suffering a collapsed lung. I had to learn to smile and say, why don't you go on ahead? I had to learn to stop trying to keep up. I had to learn to ask for help from friends and sometimes from strangers. One day, I went to work in a taxi and was planning to come back in one because I had to work late. I left the oxygen behind thinking I could manage without it if I didn't walk very far. 
I was walking to the pub, perhaps 200 metres, with a colleague. I had to stop and rest. I had to ask him to carry my bag. And I remember his astonishment, his awkwardness, as my disability revealed itself. He tried to be nice. We tried to joke and chat. I couldn't breathe. A new life descended on me, and I gradually acclimatised to it. The gradient of my walk became the most important factor, and an electric bike replaced my beloved yellow racer. I learned to walk and talk more slowly, and to be extra careful not to inhale anything, from dust to bits of food, I slowed down. I imagine that this is what it must be like to grow old, to gradually realise that as your body loses capacities, your world shrinks too. Except that old people have decades to prepare for this. I was 35 at the time of my diagnosis. From that day, the 10th of April 2006, my life changed beyond recognition and yet remained the same. I learned more about my embodied existence, about people's attitudes towards illness and disability, about the inability to speak of important things than I had in the preceding decades. I found that I had to reinvent my life. I had to give up some friendships. I had to learn to be tough on myself and sometimes rude to others. I learned to rethink my aspirations and plans. I relinquished the sense of control over my life that I had previously had. And more than anything, I learned to love what I still had. So much so that many people who meet me do not believe that I am ill at all until they watch me walking to the corner shop, that is. I learned that people will not know anything about the world of illness unless I tell them. I learned to cope, to surrender vanities. I adjusted. I learned to live a Janus-headed life, young but old, healthy-looking but ill, happy but also incredibly sad. Poet and philosopher Mark Nepo was diagnosed with a rare form of lymphoma in 1987. His journey back to health awakened a new life, and his poems reflect on the sacredness and usefulness of everything we experience, even in the midst of illness and suffering. This one gives a little window on what it was like to be inside illness during and after major surgery. So it's called thoracic surgery. 
It was like jumping with full consent into an empty well. So deep, I only remember falling in the dark till falling without direction put me to sleep. Then I woke, broken and battered, with no memory of impact. Ever since, it's been impossible to let go, and I tire and ache. When I do sleep, I wake with this shoulder burning, or that flank of muscle bound, or the vertebra in my neck locked, afraid to let go. Never knowing how or if I'll wake. And true, the trauma and pain echo smaller and smaller, but I've had to redefine normal, like putting grit in paint. For to breathe is sore. To inhale, in sore. To exhale, out sore. To dream bright and sore. And now, after 12 injections of morphine and 180 capsules of codeine, I fear the unanesthetized world. Now I'm told the side effect is depression. The heart grows sore. Now I must strip the medicine like clothes. The depression, like a zippered cloud around my head, must nakedly, with full consent, jump back into the world. Everyone said, come on, let's go. But I entered this, and nothing has been the same. How can I jump on, out, and not fear the world is a broken cage? And some more words from Mark Nepo. He says, my experience of illness has unravelled the way I see the world. It has scoured my lens of perception, landing me in a deeper sense of living. Though my story is framed around a particular crisis, cancer, I believe that crisis of the deepest kind somehow raises a common instinct to survive. And along with that instinct, a common set of tools, such as risk, trust, compassion and surrender becomes available to all. Since long before the story of Job, human beings, the most fragile and durable of all the species, have had to deal with this paradox of suffering. It's no mistake that to suffer means to feel keenly, to undergo, to experience. And flexing our knot of blood that some call heart, we are blessed and cursed into the searing moments that both threaten and enrich our lives. For to feel keenly is the only path to transformation and wholeness if it doesn't kill us first. And as with the stubborn rocks along the ocean, if we can endure the scouring, the pounding, the pounding of the deep, 
will in time reveal an inner beauty otherwise hidden. But we are not rocks. Our acuteness of perception and inner sensation, our unprecedented range of thought and mood make us so vulnerable that we can die and be reborn daily, an emotional Prometheus. And so our continual quest is to stay more renewed than devoured. Our chief task, to find a way to gain enough from what is revealed to survive the pain of such opening. That's the point of engaging our experience. To gain enough from what we feel to survive the pain in feeling it. To live through the thresholds that paradox offers. To live through the pain of breaking through to the other side, into the rearrangement of nothing less than our lives. And most importantly, we do not have to seek this experience. We have only to find the courage to internalise it, to make something of it, for we cannot avoid it. Being human, we are each the ever-changing inlet through which the greater whole in all its forms ebbs and flows. Indeed, every time the universe, though nature or God, flows through us, we are rinsed larger, cleansed and charged yet again.
time of meditation and stillness. You might want to put down anything you don't need to be holding. Make sure you're comfortable in your chair. Perhaps close your eyes or soften your gaze. I'm going to offer some words from Laura Horton Ludwig and then we'll have a few minutes of shared stillness and I'll ring our bell to bring that to a close. Take a moment to breathe into the silence. Our breath is always with us. We can always come back to the breath, our anchor, our grounding, the rhythm of our freedom. Spirit of life and love, we are here not just as minds and hearts, but bodies too. We human beings, spirit and body joined together. On this day, we send out a prayer that every person, every being may be safe and well in body and spirit. May every person be well, and may we treat every person with respect and kindness and love. As we consider the connections between our bodies and our spirits, and the ways in which we shift between sickness and health. We lift up our hope and aspiration that all people will live in freedom to give and guard their bodies as seems best to them, with all the resources and the support they need to make wise choices for their own flourishing and self-care. We say a special prayer for all those who have experienced violence or abuse, or any other form of damage to their being which is so precious. May they know safety and healing. And may our wider society be generous in supporting all those in need. For all of us, may our physical being be a source of delight and well-being as we live in this world. May every being be safe and well in body and spirit. May every person be well, and may we be vessels of compassion for everyone we meet. Let's take these thoughts of loving kindness into a shared silence now.
This month at Essex Church, we're taking on the theme of health and healing. And ever the little ray of sunshine, I thought I'd get us started with a service on being ill. In our society, talk of illness is often about symptoms, diagnosis and treatment, the medical side of things, which is, of course, an extremely important aspect of trying to keep us well. But I've called today's service Inside Illness, because I want to focus for a time on the inner experience. I reckon that given a bit of attention to that inner dimension, that what it's like to be ill, might help us reflect on how best to respond to some of the challenges that ill health brings, both when we ourselves are unwell and when people we know and love are suffering in this way. So I feel pretty confident in my starting assumption that everybody here at church this morning has got at least some first-hand experience of illness. If you have made it to adult life without ever being ill in any way, then you should probably come up here instead of me and tell the rest of us your secrets. I will resist the temptation to stand here and tell you about every minor ailment I've had in the last few years, but you can rest assured that I too have some insight on what it's like to be ill. And not to put too fine a point on it, being ill sucks. It can be really miserable when our body, our mind, whatever is suffering, malfunctions in some way. Even if you're only afflicted with something relatively minor in the great scheme of things, a cold, a cough, an upset stomach, hay fever, cystitis, earache, knee ache, backache, toothache, all of these injuries and illnesses have the potential to disrupt our everyday lives quite a lot. At the very least, they interfere with our ability to focus, to work, to socialise, often to sleep, which is a big one. Having said that, there is illness and then there is illness. And I want to acknowledge at this point that there are going to be some people in the room, some I know about and some I don't, and some people listening to the podcast at a later date who have got considerably more serious illness than that to deal with. If that applies to you, I particularly hope you find something helpful in this service today, if only that it acknowledges your suffering, your worries, the ways in which you've been affected by it. Perhaps it will open up an opportunity to talk to others about your experience or an opportunity to ask for the help you need. On the one hand, I do want to acknowledge that even these minor illnesses have a noticeable impact on people's lives, but I really don't mean to be flippant about those really not at all minor illnesses, which are in some cases deeply serious, life-changing, occasionally life-threatening. It feels important also to note that I'm not making any distinction between physical and mental illnesses, which are often intertwined anyway. Both are real and significant and can throw an unwanted spanner or two in the works of our lives. Our first reading this morning that Janine gave us gave an Im- a glimpse into the life of the professor of a philosopher called Professor Harvey Carroll. She's a phenomenologist, someone whose day job it is to reflect on the inner world of experience. So she's particularly well equipped to give us some insight into what it's like to be ill. Her story highlights some of the issues commonly associated with ill health. She was young and active, an academic and a fitness enthusiast in her early 30s when she came to realise that something was going very wrong with her body. Basic abilities that she'd previously taken for granted to run, to walk, to breathe were being lost one by one. She got a scary diagnosis and was stunned to hear that there was no cure at that time. This was the new normal for her and she would have to adjust to her reduced circumstances. 
Now, it sounds as, as if, quite understandably, Harvey railed angrily against her fate for quite some time. At first, she just tried to carry on as normal, to resist the changes as if she could defeat the illness by sheer force of will. Yet she found that her world rapidly shrank. Her illness did interfere with her ability to work, to travel, and perhaps most upsettingly, it interfered with many of her personal relationships. She lost a lot of so-called friends who no longer knew how to relate to her. Many just disappeared. Strangers, acquaintances, even medical professionals were sometimes quite careless and crass. However, in time, Harvey acclimatised to the change. You could say she reinvented herself. She lived within her new physical means and she valued those friendships that had weathered the storm. She changed the focus of her work, her philosophy, and now works mainly on the phenomenology of illness, which is where the book came from. If anyone wants to have a look later on. She's been working with medical professionals to help them relate more compassionately to people who are ill, to help them empathise with what it's like to be on the other side of that therapeutic relationship, and she's been working with ill people to help them with the process of meaning-making in difficult circumstances. Since she wrote the book, medical advances have halted the progression of her disease, though as I understand it, the damage that it already wrought can't now be undone. So what can we learn from Harvey Carell's experience? Firstly, perhaps, that we need to listen to ourselves, listen to our bodies, our feelings, and try not to ignore, suppress, or outrun anything we notice that isn't quite right. And secondly, that if we're suffering, it is okay, it is necessary and healthy to lament. When something really horrible like illness is happening in our lives, whether it's minor or major, Lamentation, expressing our misery, our distress, our frustration and our anger is all part of the process of getting through it and hopefully getting out the other side again. What this looks like will vary. If things are really serious, you might just need to lie on the floor and howl. Maybe you'll bend the ear of a willing friend or a therapist. Maybe you'll let it out in writing in a journal. There can be a bit of social pressure, I find, to not feel sorry for ourselves, to not dwell in self-pity. But why shouldn't you regard yourself with at least as much kindness and compassion as you would anyone else who was suffering, any of your friends? Let yourself have your feelings. Name your pain. Be a good friend to yourself. It may be that such heartfelt lamentation helps us avoid getting stuck in our sorrow long term. And if you're the friend whose ear is being bent at the moment, um, Harvey Carell specifically advises in her book, you don't really have to say anything too complicated in response. I'm sorry, this really sucks, is in many cases all that's required of you. A third thing we can learn from her story, sometimes you just have to stop. Abandon all your important plans and prior arrangements. Take time to rest and regroup. When we're ill, we can sometimes feel huge pressure to carry on as if nothing happened, just keep going. There's a great internal resistance, quite understandably, to this rude interruption to business as usual. And our wider culture seems often to imply that if we're ill, then it's somehow our fault. We've not looked after ourselves well enough, or that it's a moral failing, we're not tough enough to shrug it off. Think of all those terrible adverts selling cold and flu remedies to keep us in the office, come what may. 
when arguably we ought to be staying home, looking after ourselves and not spreading our germs around. In this rather brutal capitalist age, it can seem as if we're only valued for our economic productivity. I think of the fairly ugly rhetoric in certain areas of the media, where anyone who's ill or disabled or needs support in time of crisis is characterised as a scrounger of some sort. We Unitarians, I'm proud to say, often speak of the inherent worth and dignity of every person. That ultimate worth which is not dependent on our ability to get up off our sickbed and make money for the man. So to recap on three small lessons so far, if something's not quite right in your body or mind, listen to what it's telling you. Allow yourself to feel your horrible feelings and lament, rage and wail about your suffering if you need to. And take the time you need to just step off the conveyor belt of life and stop. Rest. And I realise that the circumstances of our lives sometimes make that very hard to do. But I suspect it might be possible more often than we think. At least some, to some degree, we can disengage from the world for a while without anyone or anything coming to great harm. The Buddhist writer Jean Smith has this to say on the ways that we react to getting ill. She says, when we become sick, we often take the illness personally and feel that our happiness is conditional upon getting rid of it. We forget that illness, along with ageing and death, is a hallmark of human existence, and we get angry at our bodies for letting us down. Sometimes out of fear, we generate horrendous stories about our illness that may cause us more suffering than the illness would itself. When we realise that illness is inescapable, that stress around illness increases our suffering and that being sick is not a shortcoming. Only then can we be at ease with and maybe even empowered by our illness. And she offers this wish, this prayer which is on the front of your order of service. When I experience the unavoidable illnesses that are part of my human condition, may I be mindful of impermanence, free from fear and grateful for the blessings which also arise and pass away. Jean Smith's words hint at what is perhaps the most significant lesson we can learn from all these writers and thinkers on illness. It's there in Harvey Carell's story. It's echoed by Mark Nepo, the poet who gave us our second reading today. Both Carell and Nepo and many other wise people speak of the importance of trying to make some kind of sense out of it all. Trying to distill a deeper meaning from their experience of illness. It's an experience they did not choose, but which they had to endure finding solid ground within themselves and putting their suffering in a cosmic context, perhaps. Really hard work, hard spiritual work. Mark Nepo talks of how his brush with life-threatening illness pushed him to places he would never willingly have gone. But because he engaged with the experience and tried to find some meaning in it, that illness changed his way of seeing the world and deepened his way of living. At the very least, you might say it concentrated his mind and clarified what really mattered most. He is not romanticising his experience in any way, at least I don't think he is. It was a terrible time for him and his family. He isn't saying, isn't it spiritually enriching to be really, really sick? He's saying something more like, this is the flow of the universe passing through us. We're all going to go to these hard, hard places to some degree, whether we like it or not. And if we approach it this way, those experiences can ultimately be meaningful, even transformative. Think about those illnesses that you have endured, that you're enduring still, perhaps. 
What has helped you through those tough times? What meaning have you managed to make of it all? And what would you say to someone else who's going through what you went through? Each and every one of us is likely to have gleaned some wisdom along the way that we could share with each other. I'd like to close with a, an excerpt from a poem, a, a blessing really, by the Irish poet and philosopher John O'Donoghue. It's from his poem, For a Friend on the Arrival of Illness. And it goes, May you use this illness as a lantern to illuminate the new qualities that will emerge in you. May the fragile harvesting of this slow light help you to release whatever has become false in you. May you trust this light to clear a path through all the fog of old unease and anxiety until you feel arising within you a tr tranquillity profound enough to call the storm to stillness. May you find the wisdom to listen to your illness. Ask why it came, why it chose your friendship, where it wants to take you, what it wants you to know, what you need to learn to become more fully yourself that your presence may shine in the world. May you keep faith with your body, learning to see it as a holy sanctuary which can bring this night wound gradually towards the healing and freedom of dawn. May you be granted the courage and vision to work through passivity and pity to see the beauty you can harvest from the riches of this dark invitation. And may you learn to receive it graciously and promise to learn swiftly that it may leave you newborn. May it be so for each of us and for all. Amen. Within each of our hearts there is a most glorious light. Go forth and let its spark help you understand what troubles both yourself and others. Go forth and let its light of reason be a guide in your decisions. Go forth and bring its ray of hope to those in need of help in both body and spirit, that they might find healing. Go forth and fan the flames of passion to help heal our world. Go forth and spread the warm glow of love. Go forth and share your glorious light with the world. Amen. <laughs>